Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you so much for listening. It, uh, as always, has been a while since the last episode. A lot has been going on, obviously, not just uh, in my life, but also in uh, in the country. And uh, things are pretty rough, and I hope everybody is doing okay and everyone is doing their part, whatever that might mean, to bring uh, peace and reconciliation and love and grace to uh, to their family, their friends, their acquaintances, co-workers, and to the world in general. Uh, obviously, there's some rough stuff going on right now, and we just need to uh, stay in prayer because uh, we really need we really need God to be a part of this world right now. So uh, before we get started, I just wanted to remind everybody to check out my uh, documentary, Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema, which is available at Faith Life TV. It costs $5 a month to subscribe to Faith Life TV, and they have a lot of good stuff on there, including a documentary that actually will play into uh, today's discussion. But um, there is also a, a nine-part series that I made called Faith and Filmmaking. So there's a, there's a lot to, to check out at Faith Life TV and if, if you're not interested, uh, there's a two-week free trial, so if you want to just subscribe just to check out my documentary, you can do that. But uh, the, the, the folks over at Faith Life have been uh, very nice to me about this stuff, so I just wanted to make sure that uh, I gave them a, a solid plug. So, all right, so today we are talking about Andrew Patterson's The Vast of Night, a film that a lot of people have been talking about in the last... A uh, month, month and a half, for a few reasons, not the least of which is that it is Andrew Patterson's first film, and it is an incredibly well-made, self-assured film. So much so that when I first saw it, I I looked up the director on IMDb, and because I thought like, well, he must, maybe he uh, directed some TV shows or whatever. No, he just came out of nowhere and made this fascinating little film. Um, and I don't mean to say little uh, in a pejorative way. Um, it's that the film is very self-contained and yet still tremendously ambitious. Um, it is probably as of right now, my favorite movie of the year. Now, granted, that's not saying much because given the circumstances, I haven't seen that many movies made in 2020. But um, but there are a number of movies that I've really enjoyed and The Vast of Night just really just took hold of me and just impressed me over and over and over again. And I will say that 
uh, at first, like at the, in, within the first couple of minutes, I was a little bit on my guard because we had a, a scene where the main character is walking through a high school gym right before a big game and is talking with this person, talking with that person. And it was all one continuous shot. And that tends to turn me off. But what I really liked about it is that it uses the self-importance of the long take to sort of uh, underline the main character's sense of self-importance. And I think that's that's pretty brilliant. The idea that this character is just, move, he's a mover and a shaker and he thinks that uh, he can just mess with people or he can uh, lecture people as he's going around and working his way towards the the people that he thinks summoned him to solve this big problem. And then when he gets there, he discovers that uh, uh, that they weren't even trying to get him. They actually were thinking of somebody else. Uh, and so the main character in The Vast of Night, uh, the character's name is Everett Sloan, played by Jake uh, Horowitz. Uh, incidentally, if you are an Orson Welles fan, as I am, you will know that Everett Sloan is the name of uh, an actor that uh, Wells would use frequently. He had started with Wells in the Mercury Theater. He plays uh, Mr. Bernstein in Citizen Kane, and then he also would show up in uh, The Lady from Shanghai. So there's a lot of aspects to The Vast of Night that are sort of a throwback to an earlier style of filmmaking, but then also heavily paying homage to uh, the Twilight Zone and just TV shows that were about the unexplainable. But the other thing that I really like about the film is that while it is in its own way uh, a celebration of film and then also a celebration of TV, it is also a celebration of radio. It's looking at these three very important artistic mediums uh, throughout the the last hundred years uh, because the character of Everett Sloan, he's in his uh, early 20s. He is living in this tiny little town and he is the uh, overnight radio DJ. People don't really listen to him, uh, but he takes his job very seriously. And because he's a radio guy and because the other main character, uh, Faye, played by Sierra McCormick, she is a, uh, a phone operator, a switchboard operator. Uh, they're both very focused on how everything sounds. And so the film looks good, but of course it also has to sound good because that is how these characters operate. Um, the story is about these two people uh, who know each other and are, are friendly with each other. And maybe there could be the possibility of a, of a future romance, except that Faye is still fairly young, but she might have a crush on Everett. And so uh, the, the whole town is, is gathered in the high school gym for this big basketball game. And so there really aren't that many people uh, in town. And so there aren't that many people listening to Everett's broadcast and Faye is all alone at the switchboard. 
and Faye hears a very strange sound. Uh, she seems to intercept a sound and she takes it to Everett and he doesn't know what it is either. And so he decides, oh, this could be an, an opportunity to engage with the few people that might be listening. So he plays it over the, the radio and he gets a call from uh, a man named Billy, uh, who we never see, we only ever hear him. His name, the the actor's name is Bruce Davis, and he is a, a, a man who's older. He's African American. He's a former military man, and he's talking about like, oh yes, I I know that sound. It reminds me of this this uh, this time when I was in the army and I was assigned to guard what was probably we are gathering a, a UFO, and the Billy's monologue is beautifully written and wonderfully acted. I really cannot say enough about Bruce Davis's vocal performance. And it really speaks to Andrew Patterson's trust in his audience that we listen, uh, we're watching Everett as he is listening to Billy. And we never cut to, to see Billy. Uh, the director really does think like, okay, if I do this right and if I have the audience, then it doesn't matter that we can't see Billy. We are seeing Everett's response and hopefully we're digesting the information that Billy is giving us. So when I say that the film is self-assured, that's what I mean. I mean that the director, he not only has faith in you, the audience, but he also has faith when we get to moments like Billy's uh, call uh, he, Andrew Patterson has faith that he has gotten you by then. And sure enough, he has. Those scenes are electrifying. Uh, I remember an old uh, episode of Siskel and Ebert in which they were talking about My Dinner with Andre, which is a movie that I really love. And it's just these two guys who are having dinner together and they're just talking and, and debating philosophy. And I remember... Um, as uh, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert were talking about it, they showed a clip and they said, I just wanted to watch, I just wanted to keep watching. I just wanted this, this clip to go on forever. I didn't want the conversation to end. And that is absolutely how I feel about so many scenes in The Vast of Night, uh, a film that is actually pretty short. It's about 90 minutes. But there are so many scenes where Everett and Faye are talking with each other or they're listening to somebody else and we are right there with them. We are, we are observers, we're investigators, and anytime some new bit of information comes along, we are just paying such close attention to the screen because uh, the film is very well shot. It, you know, it's called The Vast of Night. I mean, it's a wonderful title and it really speaks to the loneliness and the darkness that these characters are enduring. And so the way that Patterson uses shadow um, and uses negative space in his frame is something that just pulls you in and holds you that combined with this really atmospheric music i it's it really you know i don't like to necessarily uh, elevate a film to the point where if somebody were to watch it they would say i don't you know this you've you've pumped it up so much tyler that uh that no film could actually match that so what i will say is that as you're watching the vast of night you may find yourself wondering like, well, what's, what's the big deal? Um, 
this is not some crazy epic. It's actually a very intimate film, and it is that, and yet that doesn't mean it's not ambitious. It's tremendously ambitious for the type of story that it is telling. It uses these long takes in a way that I that work really well for me. As I said before, I don't always like a long take. I feel like uh, a filmmaker, when they, when they employ a long take, there's an element of patting themselves on the back, whereas here it just makes organic sense. We have this character, Faye, who... Uh, she's a high school student and the, the town is small enough and even within the town, her world is small enough that she can get anywhere she needs to get simply by walking at a brisk pace. And so we'll have moments of her walking from, you know, Everett's radio station to her switchboard or to her house and the camera will just follow her as she, as she walks and there's no cutting, um, you know, to, to trim down time because we don't really need to trim down the time because everything is so close to everything else. And so in this case, not only does it help us to get a, a glimpse of Faye's life, but also the geography of the town. Uh, it, it's just one of those things. It's, it's such a solid debut. Every once in a while, you'll see work by a director. It could be a, a veteran director that you've seen a million times before, or it could be a novice director, either it's their debut or maybe it's their second film, whatever it is. And you just get a sense like this is a person who just knows film. Maybe they've studied it a lot or maybe they just have an instinct for how to put a film together from a structural standpoint, from a visual standpoint, from an aural standpoint, from uh, an acting standpoint, from a musical standpoint, everything works together. And that is what The Vast of Night is. Uh, and I do want to talk about, I, I spoke about Bruce Davis, who plays the character of Billy. I did want to talk about Sierra McCormick and Jake Horowitz as Faye and Everett. Uh, they are our two main characters, and this is not a film where you, where, which has a, a lot of characters. And so we're really just following these two, either individually or together, throughout the entire film. And they are the performances are really solid. They feel very lived in. One thing that I read is that uh, some people think that these two characters aren't particularly well developed, which is to say they aren't given a lot of background. And I think that's those are different things because, yes, I agree that we don't really know a lot of these characters' backgrounds, but that doesn't mean they're not well developed. I think they're beautifully written. We really get a sense of who they are, what motivates them, what they want for their future, and how they react uh, to the present. And so, and that's just how they're written and how they're played. With Faye, we get this uh, this high schooler who is eager to please and kind of naive, but in just a, a way that is endearing and not something that we would necessarily condemn or look down on. Uh, she has the kind of youthful energy that you would have when you're younger and that you everything is so new and exciting and uh, it just speaks to the type of character she is that she hears a weird noise and rather than just say, oh, that's odd. Well, back to work. She instead turns it into a fun mystery to explore. And Everett is 
also also has that type of energy, but he also there's a certain degree of affectation for him because he is a guy who is an entertainer. He has a persona that he plays up. Um, I was going to say on screen, but on the air as a radio personality, and he is definitely seeing radio as his ticket out of town. And so he's thinking of going to California and he's, you get a sense that like, oh, he probably could do it. Um, he does have a lot of charisma. He probably has the right amount of narcissism for somebody to, um, to make it uh, on radio just as a personality. And I say this as somebody who is recording an episode completely by himself and seems to think that everybody wants to hear what he has to say. So no judgment here. But uh, but the question is, I was talking with, with my friend about, about the film, and it's not so much that Everett wouldn't be able to make it if he left. The question is, will he leave? Or will he stick with being a big fish in a small pond and complaining about the the limitations of his market but is too scared to go out into the world and risk failure and i think it speaks volumes of jake horowitz's performance that you can't quite tell it could be either or uh he might be such a go-getter that absolutely is when whenever he gets the money together or whatever it is whenever he gets an opportunity he's out of here or it could be that he always finds a reason to not leave right now and pushes it to to, uh, tomorrow or next week and just is perpetually putting it off and so you have these two characters who have an energy and a curiosity, and they both have big dreams that seem bigger than the town they are in. So naturally, they're drawn to each other. It's not necessarily an attraction, although Faye probably does have a bit of a crush on Everett. Everett, I don't think, has that going the other way, but uh, you could interpret it that way as well. And so these two actors who I, you know, Jake Horowitz does not have an extensive filmography. I myself am largely unfamiliar with Sierra McCormick, uh, but they are able to carry this film perfectly. And they also have a great deal of chemistry when they're talking with each other. I'm really excited to listen to what they have to say. Uh, And then along with the character of Billy, there is this other character named Mabel. Um, It's such a good old-timey kind of name and in a way now that i think about it <laughs> you know if if everett's name is a reference to to something and uh you know who's to say that Faye, um the character's name is Faye crocker who's to say that Faye is not a reference to Faye ray from king kong and then maybe betty crocker i don't know and then in the case of mabel played by uh gail cronauer it's mabel blanche and uh, I see. I think it was uh, The Simpsons, or it might have been Futurama, that featured a uh, a switchboard operator who, in between calls, is is talking to her friend and saying, uh, "So I says to Mabel, I says." And so I wonder if, since we have a switchboard operator, and since there is a character named Mabel, I wonder if if that is a a little tip of the hat to that. I'm not really sure, but. Um, so Everett and Faye, as they're pursuing what this sound could be and quickly developing a theory that these are broadcasts from an alien world or perhaps an alien ship that is nearby, 
they follow the trail to this woman, Mabel, once again, played by Gail Cronauer. And Gail delivers this very sad, very harrowing, and a little bit spooky, this monologue about her son who just disappeared one day. And everybody in town seems to know that, but nobody really knows why people might perhaps people blame her. Um, maybe they think that her son just ran off, whatever it is. Everybody knows that Mabel is, uh, damaged or mourning or whatever it is. Uh, and so she delivers this really beautifully written monologue and she comes off certainly like a very sincere person, but as she quickly veers towards the idea of spaceships and abductions and that sort of thing, uh, Everett and Faye start to roll their eyes, even even if they are playing, they've been toying with this idea themselves. Uh, but when she makes it more overt, that's when they they feel like, okay, this was maybe a waste of time. Uh, but along the way, they were probably entertaining this notion themselves. And, you know, I don't necessarily want to get into, into the, the themes of the film yet, or at least the themes as, as they struck me. But I do think that that is a very interesting idea that these characters who are enthusiastic and are curious and when talking to Billy, they're not seeing him, they're only hearing him. So uh, it it's not the, the idea of extraterrestrials or whatever it is. Um, it's not tangible yet. But then once they're in, and so they can play with this as, as, as an exciting possibility, but once they actually are dealing with the the emotional ramifications because now they're dealing with this woman for whom the idea of of alien abduction is a very real thing because oh her her son disappeared suddenly the curiosity goes away and the cold hard reality of what are we actually even talking about here starts to set in and you see especially with Everett you see him pity Mabel, but you see him probably start to judge himself. There's a very palpable disgust in his face. And I think that's an interesting note for Jake Horowitz to play in that character because um, it makes him seem we're so on board with what Mabel is saying and we and we feel so bad for what she's dealing with that to have our main character judge her and look down on her um, and even maybe be a little bit disgusted by her or repelled, uh, it, it's not a good look for him, but you really do get the impression that it's, all, it's, it's towards her, but it's also towards himself for even entertaining these uh, outlandish notions. So I did want to talk about what this film made me think about. And it, it comes about as a function of Mabel's monologue. So I, I, I wrote down a, a portion of it here and, and then we'll, we'll move on. So I'll, I'll read this. This is, this is from Mabel's monologue. She says, I think they like people alone. 
And incidentally, the they here means aliens. She says, I think they like people alone, and I think they talk to people with some kind of advanced radio in their sleep. I think at the lowest level, they send people on errands. They play with people's minds. They sway people to do things and think certain ways so that they so that we stay in conflict, focused on ourselves, so that we're always cleaning house or losing weight or dressing up for other people. I think they, I think they get inside our heads and make us do destructive things like drink and overeat. I've seen good people go bad and smart people go mad. I think at the highest level, they do things that cause nations to go to war, things that make no sense. And I think that no one knows they're being affected. Now, you know, she's what she's talking about here is deflection is these aliens not wanting to be detected by humans are forcing humans or planting ideas in humans uh, in human minds so that they look at each other with suspicion or envy or whatever it is and it keeps them from asking the bigger questions or being more aware of the aliens themselves that idea of not seeing the woods for the trees and you know so I'm a Christian, and if you're listening, I assume you are as well. And when you're a Christian, especially in the circles that I run in, which is you know academia, academia critical thinking, that sort of thing, there are aspects of the faith that it's not that you don't necessarily believe them, it's that you don't talk about them because you know how they will sound. And I myself was raised in the Nazarene denomination which was pretty reserved. You know, it was it was unemotional and it was not a it was not a charismatic uh, denomination. And when I say charismatic, I mean literally like that is a a sort of aspect of certain denominations. Um, and one thing that was not talked about very often, it's not that it it's not that it was, uh, dismissed, but the concept of spiritual warfare, I remember I was not raised really talking a lot about the devil and about demons or angels or anything like that. Um, and so when I would hear other Christians talk about, uh, again, spiritual warfare, my, uh, my reaction was very much like uh, Everett's when Mabel is talking about this, which is he sees in her, uh, the, the logical or the one could say the extreme extension of what he has been entertaining. And when she says it, suddenly it sounds so crazy and he, he judges himself for ever letting his curiosity go so far. And as I get older, uh, I can speak pretty plainly about the fact that being who I am and thinking the way that I think, I was always very reluctant to talk about, you know, Satan or angels or demons because I, I didn't like the idea of whether it be me or anybody else passing the buck 
uh, you know, if, if I were to do something wrong saying, oh, well, the devil made me do it. And even though that is not what spiritual warfare actually means, that is very much how I looked at it. This idea that, uh, that, oh, well, if I blame, uh, you know, the, the forces of darkness or whatever it is, uh, then I can, I can wash my own hands of it and say that, uh, and downplay my own responsibility. Um, but as I get older and I talk to other Christians who are more comfortable talking about this, uh, I come to realize that my own judgment of myself and other people and at the, at the core, um, biblical doctrine, uh, I, I realize that I am, to use the biblical term, um, I'm relying on my own understanding and I'm judging the world and judging life experience based on what sounds logical to me. But when it comes right down to it, being a Christian, I believe that there is this larger force at work in the world and that this larger force is a creative force and also a relatable and personal force. And it has a, a personality and an attitude and a will. And I call this force God. And I believe that this force uh, separated a part of itself and became human so that it could uh, sort of set an example for the rest of us and then also sacrifice itself for the rest of us and then come back to life. I mean, like all of this sounds outlandish when you talk about it. So why is it that when we talk about or when I talk about spiritual warfare, why do I say, well, I'm going to, I don't want to talk about that. I'd rather play that down. And let's just go back to talking about this giant unseen force because that'll sound a lot better. And so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make fun of the belief in God. Obviously I have it. And I'm not trying to make fun of the belief in Jesus. Obviously I believe that. Um, but it's more just this idea that I think everybody has this, we all have the parts of, of, uh, Christian doctrine and parts of the Bible that we would rather not deal with. It's not that we don't want it to be true. It's that we just don't really know what to do with that thing. And I think for me, it is very much the idea of the role of Satan and demons in our lives. Even though, you know, I, one of my favorite books is C.S. Lewis's, um, the Screwtape Letters, which I have read and I'll be referencing in this episode. I, I love it. And, and I find it very convicting when I read it, uh, because it's all about a one demon writing a letter to another demon about how best to influence and tempt, uh, human beings. And I read that and I, and I think, oh man, yeah, I got to think more about this. And then usually within a very short amount of time, I'm back to thinking purely in terms of people and God. And, you know, uh, to quote uh, the usual suspects, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he didn't exist. And so what I will say is as I continue talking about what I'm going to talk about today, um, you yourself might start to pull away and say that, oh, Tyler sounds crazy. You might approach me the way that Everett approaches Mabel um, and the way that I 
approach myself and, and other Christians. But I do, I really want to, I really want to try and explore this idea that there are these forces that, that there are forces in, in this case, like the force of God, which is loving and merciful, but also just and good and is wanting us to be that. But I also want to talk about the other side that only wants to undercut and cause chaos and doubt and sadness and anger and bitterness and resentment and envy and all these other things that keep us from making positive choices, keep us from connecting with other people and keep us feeling alone. That I think is one of the, the one of the best aspects of this monologue by Mabel. She says, I think they like people alone. And that's, I mean, to me, that's it. Like almost any time, this is a larger theory that I'm coming up with right now, so don't hold me to it. But when I think of the the terrible things that people are capable of doing to one another, I, I feel at the core, there's if you're really feeling connected to the rest of humanity, if you really feel like you are part of a brotherhood, part of a community, whatever you want to say, part of a family, I feel like it would, it's probably harder to hurt somebody. Not impossible. We, you know, we, it's not at all uh, difficult to hurt the people you love, but I feel like this, this, this tendency we have to feel like nobody understands us and that we are at odds with the world. I certainly know that I myself deal with tremendous trust issues and it has caused some trouble in my life and trouble in my marriage and in my spiritual walk. Um, and I just often feel very, very alone, just as Everett tends to feel, just as Faye tends to feel they're in this small town and it's a per and, and the, the, physical circumstances that they're in in this film is a, are a perfect symbol of their lives, which is everybody is at the gym watching this game, but these two stragglers are doing their own thing. It's not that they're not interested in the game. It's just that their passions and their responsibilities lie elsewhere. And so it makes them, on one hand, uniquely able to recognize what these aliens are doing, but it also makes them specifically susceptible to, uh, to what the aliens want to do. And so <clears throat> I wanted to, we're going to talk more about this, this idea of spiritual warfare in a moment, but I wanted to bring in the companion film because even though in many ways it is very different than the vast of night, uh, it f it feels very similar, and that is John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, which is about this scientific outpost in Antarctica, and it's just all these guys. Some of them are technicians, some of them are doctors. Some one of our main character, played by Kurt Russell, is just a pilot, and they encounter an alien that has the ability to mimic uh, other living organisms. 
And so it attacks these guys one by one and uh, kills them, but then it imitates them and it's a perfect imitation. And so after a while, these guys who are, again, they're secluded, they're alone. Granted, there's like 12 of them, but they're, they're cut off from the rest of the world. And one by one, they are attacked by the thing. And then it gets to a point where those that are left, you don't know which ones are human and which ones are the imitation. And so they are all suspicious of one another. Um, and so there's this line uh, by the character McCready, played by Kurt Russell, and he says, I know I'm human. He's talking to the rest of the guys. And if you were all these things, then you just attack me right now. So some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies, nobody left to kill it, and then it's one. And I really love that idea um, of being vulnerable when it's out in the open. It doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide. That is how it thrives. Because as long as it's hiding, it can actually capitalize on people's lack of trust. Um, it can, like, there's a scene where our main character, McCready, he shoots another guy in the head. Now, granted, that guy was about to attack him. Uh, and that guy is not the thing. So literally, uh, the, the, this alien life form has caused the paranoia to skyrocket to such a degree that these humans are literally killing each other, which means that's one less human for me to kill, uh, or one less human for me to, uh, feel threatened by whatever it is. And so looking at it that way, looking at this situation, and if you haven't seen the thing, and I imagine you probably have wonderful visual effects, I guess, I mean, practical effects, they're not even visual effects in, in the way we understand that term. It's a beautiful looking film. I would re I'd really recommend it on Blu-ray. Um, I think Shout Factory or Scream Factory put out a really great version of it. Uh, it's, it's a film that up until somewhat recently, I never thought of as, as having a really strong visual component. Um, I thought of it as like, oh, well, they're in Ant Antarctica. All the guys are wearing sort of these earth tones. They're in this bunker looking place. So it's just a bunch of grays. That's not true at all. There are some really deep blues and reds and the way the film uses shadow to create depth. Uh, it's a really good looking film with a, a great cast uh, among them, the uh, always reliable Wilford Brimley. And I know people are probably going to laugh when, when I say that, but I love Wilford Brimley as an actor. There's just a, he's just very in the moment and there's just a naturalism to him that you just don't see in a lot of other actors. Anyway, so if we look at The Vast of Night and we look at the thing and we look at the way that these that these films are approaching aliens and the way those aliens are approaching the human subjects, it's all about division and isolation, deception, and this is all to essentially hide even the existence or at the very least, the uh, the, uh, the human human awareness of the aliens' existence. So I want to talk about all of this in regards to the idea 
of demons. And one of the reason that, reasons that I'm thinking about that is because of everything that's been going on in the world right now. Uh, you know, you have people being singled out by the police maybe because of their race i don't know what i don't know if it's that i don't know if it's only that or if uh, a person's race like if, uh, allows a police officer to feel like they're more justified in using force or whatever it is uh, and then you have people willing to burn down businesses and physically hurt other people to try to make a point and feeling like they're doing the right thing. You have politicians demonizing not just their opponent, but anybody that would vote for their opponent. Um, you know, you have other politicians saying like, well, Hey, if you, if you don't vote for me, then you, your identity as, you know, a black person or a compassionate person or whatever it is, well, that's in doubt now. And it's just, it's all just so divisive and nobody trusts anybody. And, you know, I mean, I recognize that th there was a literal civil war in this country uh, in the 1860s. And, even, you know, 50 years ago, things were so terrible and that like there are literal laws on the books allowing discrimination against people. And so I do recognize that things have been worse, but this is definitely as bad as it's been in my lifetime. And I recognize I'm not particularly old, but I feel old at this point. I'm 38 and I just see older and younger generations just constantly blaming each other and saying like, oh, well, you couldn't possibly understand what I'm going through. And rather than try to explain what I'm going through or listen to what you're going through, I'd rather just dismiss you and your opinion and just insist on my own. And I look at all that and it is hard not to get cynical and tired and angry and sad and all of these things that I am sure I am not the only one feeling. Um, and in the midst of all of this, and man, I like, I even, I'm reluctant even to say it because I never wanted to be that person. But in the midst of all this, I can only picture Satan just sitting on the sidelines and just reveling in how much we hate each other right now. And I think of the whisperings. I think of the screw tape letters, you know, uh, there's a quote here. So the, the point of the screw tape letters is that you have one demon, once again, uh, writing a letter to, um, what is it? Uh, the, the demon screw tape is writing a letter to his nephew Wormwood about how best to uh, lead his subject astray. And one thing he says is, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And 
while I think there probably is a combination of the two, I do think that uh, there's something to be said for that because as we talk about our national situation, one of the things that is kept out of our minds is the humanity of the person we disagree with. And I'm no different. Uh, I look at the people I disagree with and and the, the only thing I see is our difference. I don't see where they are coming from. I don't I might not even see their motivation. I try to, and sometimes I do better. I do some better some days than others, but uh, lately I've just been so damn tired that I don't have the energy to cut this other person slack or show them the grace that I've been show, uh, shown by other people. And images of the humanity of this other person are being kept out of my brain and I have to work to remind myself that this other person is loved by God. And I think of this, once again, this line from Mabel where she says, I've seen good people go bad and smart people go mad. And that definitely that definitely seems to apply to what's going on right now. But at the same time, the whole point of what Mabel is saying and a big part of what the vast of night is about, in my opinion, and what the thing is about is these, the, the, these aliens and this alien organism in, in the thing, it's not turning these characters against each other just for kicks it's doing it so that they aren't asking the right questions so that they aren't uh, allowing themselves to be aware of the larger issues and when you're when you're a christian you know that the larger issues are the existence of god the fact that God loves the people I dislike just as much as he loves me, the realization that I am far from perfect and that at any given moment I could be in the wrong in my political opinions or the way that I express them. And that there are these other forces that have uh, a vested interest in the failure and misery of people precisely because God loves us so much. You know, I am not a parent. Um, so I don't know what it's like to see your children go astray. And I don't mean in a larger sense. It literally could just mean your child disobeying you or hurting someone else. I don't know what it's like to see that and feel sad and or maybe heartbroken for them what they are doing and the consequences that it's that are going to be visited upon them i don't know what that's like but if indeed i do believe in a loving and relational god then he is deeply aware of that because every single person is perpetually whether they believe in him or not 
is perpetually in the process of making a mistake and hurting other people, even as we are trying to emulate Jesus, we're going to get it wrong. And so these are the things that we are meant to not be thinking about because we're so busy blaming each other and hating each other. And it is. And then for those of us who run out of hate, we're just so tired that we can't do anything about it. And we, in our tiredness, we feel very alone. We don't feel connected to other people. We don't feel connected to God. We just feel alone. And that is often when we are at our most vulnerable. So <clears throat> I want to move into, uh, I, have, I have multiple uh, Bible verses here. Second uh, Corinthians 11, 12 through 15. And I will keep doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. And so this is all about deceit and disguising and, you know, Satan disguising himself as something very righteous indeed. Uh, but if you look at what he is saying or what he is doing, you realize like, well, that doesn't actually sound like righteousness. Um, and so first Peter five verses eight through nine, you're probably very familiar with this one. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And I find that so fascinating because it is saying resist him, standing firm in faith. And then what it appeals to is that you're not alone. This thing that may, that might make you feel so alone and is going to break down your resistance, if you remember that you are not alone in what you are dealing with, you are not alone in your sadness and your suffering and your anger, um, in your righteous anger, perhaps, uh, you are not actually alone. And to keep and the idea of keeping that in mind, leading to resistance, uh, is something I find fascinating. So we'll jump into Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 17. This is undoubtedly one that you uh, are familiar with. Um, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, you know, I look at, at these verses and I'm so frustrated with myself that I would downplay the, the devil, that I would downplay spiritual warfare because, well, that just sounds crazy. And I just find myself thinking like, yeah, I imagine, even as I say this now, I feel like I sound like a crazy person. And I'm sure to those of you who maybe aren't Christian, I probably do sound like a crazy person. But this idea, this idea of like, yeah, that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to think this is crazy. So don't talk about it and don't think about it. And yet here it talks about taking a stand against the devil's schemes. It talks about the evil one. It talks about how our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against the people that we disagree with. It's not about the people that have hurt us. It is deeper than that. Those people, don't get me wrong, there are, obviously there are earthly consequences to people that do wrong. And that is something that we should strive for. We should strive for an objective sense of justice. But we also need to recognize that at all times, there is this other force that is trying to influence them, trying to influence us constantly to get us against one another, or if nothing else, get us pulling away from one another. And so as, I mean, this is a weird thing to think about it or talk about in regards to these movies, but at the same time, these movies are about these otherworldly creatures having an impact, a psychological impact and a physical one on these characters that have been so effectively isolated from one another. Um, so I don't think it's the craziest thing to think about. And incidentally, over at Faith Life TV, there is a, um, a documentary called Aliens and Demons, which talks about uh, sort of the correlation between these ideas. So uh, it's a very interesting documentary. I recommend it. Um, and it's certainly, uh, as I was as I was watching the vast of night and my mind drifted towards the concept of, of demons, uh, I remember that that documentary existed. So I went over to faith life and, uh, and watched it and it was very interesting. Um, and they put things in a much more eloquent way than I ever could. So if you're interested, I'd say, check it out. I'm not going to paraphrase it for you. Um, but you know, as we, as we think about everything that's going on in the world, right now and we think about as as mabel says <laughs> so mabel says to me she says uh they sway people to do things and think certain ways so that we stay in conflict focused on ourselves and you know even if we're not in conflict with one another that focusing on ourselves and then she says, so that we're always cleaning house or losing weight or dressing up for other people. You know, I, I'm reminded of yet another passage from the Screwtape Letters in which Screwtape writes to Wormwood, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. 
Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And so, you know, I, I think of all the things, you know, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't raped anybody, but I've lied and I've hurt people. And what's worse is I've knowingly hurt people. I've said things that I know will hurt someone's feelings because in that moment I feel so justified. I focus on the way they've hurt me. And so hurting them is obviously just the, it's just the way it should be. And I think of that and yes, one could say that in the grand scheme of things, those are, those are smaller sins, but they can still lead you away from that feeling of connectedness, not just with your fellow man, but that feeling of connectedness with God. If we're focused on ourselves and we feel alone, we soon will become alone. Uh, another, uh, line here from the screw tape letters is suspicion often creates what it suspects. And if we suspect that people are pushing us away, we will actually pull ourselves away from other people. And so what I would encourage you to do is, and it's, it's going to be difficult because it's difficult for me to even say is recognize that there is a lot going on that we don't see in our lives. And on, on, in some cases, those are good things. Those are, you know, it's God opening a door or softening a person's heart or giving us comfort in times of grief or sadness or whatever. Um, so that is some of the stuff that we, that we don't see, but we might feel. And I would encourage you and it's, it's sometimes in those feelings that we start to acknowledge that maybe God is working in our lives. But what I would encourage you to do is pay attention to those other feelings too. Those feelings of resentment, those feelings of entitlement, those feelings not of righteousness, but of self-righteousness. And maybe use those to lead you to recognize that, oh, there is something else at work as well. And I would encourage you, this is something that, that, my wife and I have been trying to do more lately. Um, I would encourage you to actively try to pray against that, um, to pray that God would, you know, blow the haze away and just all the obfuscation that's going on in your mind, all the stuff that is being kept out of your mind, uh, that God would bring it in so that we have a deeper understanding of the world, a deeper understanding of ourselves, of our fellow man, so that we can see the world as God sees it, with people just feeling so lost and just wandering, trying to find some kind of purpose, find some kind of cause, find some kind of meaning, and then these other forces whispering in our ears that the meaning can be found in ourselves or our own causes, and certainly not in other people. Um, there's a line here that is 
uh, from the thing and it's meant to be uh, it's meant to be ironic and a little bit sarcastic. Uh, the thing is not an upbeat film. Um, but McCready is talking to a character and he says, trust's a tough thing to come by these days. Tell you what, why don't you just trust in the Lord? And that's meant to, and that's a laugh line and uh, Kurt Russell delivers it wonderfully. It's good advice though. You know, we, we do have a hard time trusting one another and in some cases, we have a hard time trusting ourselves, but we can trust in God. We can trust that he, that his love and his sacrifice is how we should be trying to conduct ourselves, um, as opposed to the constant hamster wheel of self-interest and self-righteousness and politics and all of this other stuff that we use to differentiate and divide ourselves from one another. So, you know, this is the stuff that, that uh, the vast of night got me thinking about. And it's entirely possible that as you watch it, you're certainly, you won't think of that at all because perhaps you're not somebody who thinks in terms of spiritual warfare. And the thing is I wasn't either, but this movie kind of got me thinking along those lines and I'm grateful for that because it gets me to realize that the enemy is not my fellow man. That is my neighbor. And I am supposed to love him as I love myself. And yes, if he hurts me or if he hurts someone else, then yet, then that is something that needs to be dealt with. But he is still my neighbor and the real enemy is the enemy of God. And wants no righteousness, wants no love, no grace, no connectedness, only wants bitterness and hate and isolation. I am grateful to uh, director Andrew Patterson for uh, making a really wonderful film that I think, you know, I don't think he's trying to evoke demons, but I think he is trying to get us to think about the stuff that we let divide us when we should be trying to unite as much as we can. So anyway, um, all right. So I will go ahead and leave it there. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. If you have any comments, which it's entirely possible you will, uh, given the odd nature of this episode. Um, you're welcome to put the comments uh, in the comment section of this episode at morethanonelesson.com. You can always follow me on Twitter at More Lessons. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, and then uh, once again, do check out my documentary, Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema at Faith Life TV. Uh, if you are a reviewer, feel free to write a review of it, uh, frankly, positive or negative. Positive would be better. But, uh, but yeah, the more reviews we get in general, uh, the more likely uh, that Faith Life will be to uh, let me make another one of these. And there is one that I would like to make. So um, yeah, so supporting the, the, the documentary uh, wherever you can would be greatly appreciated. Uh, in the meantime, I don't know when the next episode will be. Um, I'll try to have it be, you know, sooner than uh, a month. 
but uh, no promises. Life is pretty crazy these days. So thank you once again for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye.